Blog Talk Radio. From Lives in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at Home. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help your challenging child and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach at home. If you have a question or comment, call 347-994-2981. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about your challenging child and what we can do to help you Make things better. Hey there. Welcome to the program. We do this every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, Parenting challenging kids. Because it's hard. Parenting a behaviorally challenging child is really hard. Um, It's hard because, um, well, it looks different. And it's hard because in our society, you don't want to have a behaviorally challenging kid because somebody's going to think it's your fault. They're going to think you're a passive, permissive, inconsistent, non-contingent parent. They're going to blame you. That's hard, especially since it's not true. Um, It's hard because we're all looking for things to get better quickly and frequently helping a child with behavioral challenges do better doesn't happen quickly it happens incrementally over time it's hard because it's lonely isolating Uh, I hear frequently from parents who are just desperate for help and of course the internet is loaded with uh, diagnoses and places they can potentially turn for help but The fact that you're listening to this program now says that you've turned to lives in the balance and collaborative problem solving for help. And um, good for you. I think that's a smart play. Um, We'll see if we get any callers today. If you do want to call in, that number is 347-994-2981. You don't have to call in to ask about how to use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. Uh, you don't have to call in to talk about Plan B um, or other aspects of the collaborative problem-solving approach. You can just call in if you want to to let people know that you feel isolated and that it's just nice to have a place to call into where um, people don't think it's your fault and where other people turn for help recently posted some rather touching new um, stories in the Tell Your Story section of the Lives in the Balance website. A lot of desperation out there, a lot of isolation out there, but it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, And at Lives in the Balance, we're trying to do our part to make it so it's not that way, and this radio program is just one small part of that. So if you do want to call in, that always uh, we always give callers top billing on this program, 
347-994-2981. In the absence of callers, um, I'm going to take some emails because uh, we've gotten a fair number of those uh, over the last week or two. Here's one, Dr. Green. My husband and I are very grateful and happy with your collaborative problem solving. We have a difficult and inflexible seven-year-old son, and things are much better. We're having a terrible time, though, with our three-year-old son, who's showing many of the same behaviors that our seven-year-old showed at that age. We have a 10-year-old who is ridiculously easy in comparison. Well, sounds like you have diversity. Um, Your uh, parenting adventure is taking you into all corners. Um, My bet is that you probably wouldn't like, 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 you, you prefer for like to be a little bit less interesting. But do you have any suggestions or literature for younger children? Um, to tell you the truth, um, there are some radio programs that um, are uh, specifically geared toward how you do collaborative problem solving uh, with a younger kid. The interesting thing is there's actually not all that much difference in what it looks like with a younger kid as compared to an older kid quite frankly you're still trying to figure out um, what skills the child is lacking and you know some people look at the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems and they say um, yeah but aren't there some of these skills that we wouldn't expect at certain ages and the answer is sorta Um, there's skills we would certainly expect to be better developed further down the line, but as I've always said, especially in the language domain, for example, but if a kid is having difficulty um, putting his concerns or thoughts or needs into words or expressing them, it doesn't have to be in words, um, and that's setting in motion challenging behavior, well, got yourself an unsolved problem, got yourself a lagging skill. If it's not setting in motion challenging behavior, uh, I guess you could be less concerned, but still might want to get it checked out. Um, if language skills aren't developing in a three-year-old, that's something you'd want to call to the attention of somebody who knows how to assess that and help you out if there's uh, something getting in the way. Um, unsolved problems, there's no age issue there if a if an infant is having difficulty digesting formula and is vomiting a lot, that's an unsolved problem. If, um, an infant is having difficulty sleeping away from his or her parents at night and is screaming all night long, uh, age doesn't matter there. That's an unsolved problem. You've got a problem to solve. So unsolved problems have no age restrictions whatsoever. And then, of course, the big question is, is uh, not the next big question is, does Plan B look different if you're doing it with a three-year-old as compared to a seven-year-old as compared to a 10-year-old, even a well-behaved 10-year-old? And the answer is there, there might be some uh, stylistic things about Plan B that would look different with a three-year-old as compared to a 10-year-old. There might be some language that you use that is less sophisticated with a three-year-old than with a ten-year-old, although there's many people with very sophisticated three-year-olds who will tell you um, 
they talk in a more sophisticated manner with a three-year-old than they do with a particular ten-year-old. So I'm not sure the chronological age is the biggest issue there. Um, I don't think Plan B looks a whole lot different with a three-year-old. And the most important thing to remember is an unsolved problem is an unsolved problem, irrespective of how old a child is. Quite frankly, an an unsolved problem is an unsolved problem, irrespective of how old the person is. Adults have unsolved problems. No age restriction on unsolved problems. So the reality is, even if you feel like some of the lagging skills don't really apply, viewing a three-year-old's behavioral difficulties through the prism of lagging skills is still going to serve you well. Identifying highly specific unsolved problems in a one-day-old is still going to serve you well. Um, Don't know to what degree you are going to engage a one-day-year-old in the linguistic give-and-take of collaborative problem-solving, given that one-day-olds aren't using words and won't for quite some time. But that doesn't mean that one-day-olds don't have unsolved problems. They do. doesn't mean that one-day-olds don't have concerns about those unsolved problems. They do. It just means they can't let you know what those unsolved problems, what their concerns are in words. And the amazing thing is, as I've always said, you do collaborate with a one-day-year-old. You do try to apply an intervention you know, obviously the one-day-old probably isn't making a lot of suggestions in terms of solutions, but um, you are trying to intervene, trying to be responsive, and still getting feedback from the infant about whether your intervention is working. The feedback is the infant's way of letting you know, yeah, it's a good solution, or no, the solution isn't quite cut it yet. Go back to the drawing board, please, because I'm still crying still miserable, still scared, still uncomfortable. I hope that answers the question. You, um, If you've had success with your seven-year-old in doing collaborative problem-solving, don't let the fact that the child is three get in your way. Chronological age is not really the deciding factor. Uh, Collaborative problem-solving is going to look different if a child doesn't have the communication skills to participate in the way the videos look on the Lives in the Balance website. But that doesn't mean you're not interested in unsolved problems. doesn't mean that you are not interested in um, the child's concerns and you're still collaborating on solutions. Here's another email, Dr. Green. I stumbled upon your podcast in iTunes. Cool. And have been so grateful for it. I'm a uh, clinical psychologist living overseas in the Far East, and I train students and work with families here. I believe in your model, and I've seen it work with my own kids. However, I find it very challenging to convince parents in this part of the world, I'm not being specific about the part of the world, who were raised with a certain value system, to drill for information and listen to their children without adding any tone, lecturing, admonition, etc. It's much, very much in the cultural values here that parents are to teach and train their children. Oh, I'm glad you said that. Not to listen to them. 
not not glad that you said that part, glad you said the first part. The parents that do try to understand their kids are often those who are overwhelmed on the permissive end and mostly doing Plan C. Hmm, how would that be? Plan C is not permissive. And uh, listening to kids is not the sole domain of parents who are not trying to solve any problems with their kids. Are you having any success applying collaborative problem-solving cross-culturally? And if so, how do you spin it? I love the question. I love the first one, too, by the way. Um, I guess the question is, uh, you know, there's a few ways to go at this. I wonder if there are, you know, because here in the United States, here in North America, here in this part of the world, there are lots of parents who don't believe that it's important to drill for information and listen to their children without adding any tone, lecturing, or admonition. We we got we got the same thing here. You might have it you might have it per capita in greater quantity in the part of the world you're in, the Far East, but um got plenty of that going on here. Children are to be seen and not heard. Um spare the rod and spoil the child. Um we we got plenty of it. So, and I don't know if I don't know what values drive that. So I don't know if the value systems that you're referring to, you'd know better. But I don't know if the value systems that you're referring to are driving parental behavior, or whether it's just sort of run-of-the-mill parental behavior toward kids that is driving a lot of it, and. You know, sometimes in the United States, I'll hear that a parent's parenting practices are driven by sometimes, not not always, but values based, for example, in religion. Amazingly enough, within any religion I have found, and I'm not the expert on religion, but any time religion comes up as the reason for doing Plan A, there's always just as much within that religion talking about why parents should be doing Plan B. Just as much. It's just that the people who are proponents of Plan A are using the part of the religion that they want to pay attention to to justify Plan A. They could just as easily find things to justify plan B. Whether that's true of religions that you are running into in the Far East, you might know better than I. I'm not um, claiming any expertise. But this does come up frequently, is that the parents have strong values, strong religious values. Um, That's nice. Um, In every religion that I have looked at, Lots of, and in fact, there are, if you get online here in the United States and look for, there are actually religious groups that are against spanking, against corporal punishment. Um, And yet there are people who are taking the very same religions and saying, here's what this religion says you should do. You should hitch kid. You have the right. So, uh, I don't know if 
religions in the Far East are totally about Plan A, but I'm going to look into it. Maybe I should have before I answered this question. I forgot that this was one of the questions that come up if we do have somebody listening who is an expert in uh, Far Eastern religions um, or wants to do a little research online uh, quickly before this program ends. Hard to imagine, given all that religions bring to the table in terms of values and morals, that there's nothing in any particular religion about listening to kids, taking their concerns into account, treating children with respect, hard to imagine. But that's not your only option. So one option, I suppose, being purely practical here, is to point out to people that there are writings within the religion that you may be, that they may be justifying their use of Plan A with. Uh, you can find things in that religion that would also justify the use of Plan B. So if, if religion is the justification, my bet is that you might be on safe ground, but I'm not positive I'm going to look into it after the program. So, but the, the, the part that I found most interesting is you're saying that um, in the, the cultural values in the country that you're in, parents are to teach and train their children. And as I said, spectacular, uh, because if teaching and training children is um, what we're looking for, well, there's many different ways to skin the cat. I hate that uh, analogy. Many different ways to accomplish the same mission. Um, teaching and training. I wonder if parents who are teaching and training their kids in a way that isn't working are best served by sticking with teaching and training their kids in the way that isn't working, or if teaching and training is paramount. And boy, uh, can't think of a whole lot of other things that parenting is more about than teaching and training. Unfortunately, and this is, of course, one of the major points of collaborative problem-solving, the kids who we talk about in this program, the behaviorally challenging ones, aren't, for very good reasons, lagging skills, benefiting from traditional ways of teaching and training kids. If teaching and training is what we want to accomplish, and the way we're going about trying to teach and train isn't working, we need a new way. We need a different way. Teach and train some other way, because doing more of what isn't working isn't likely to work. And to be perfectly honest, this way of teaching and training, the collaborative problem-solving way, does involve understanding what a kid's concern or perspective is. But that's not plan C. That's plan B. I wonder if the reason you're telling me that the parents who do try to understand their kids are often those who are overwhelmed on the permissive end and mostly doing plan C. I wonder if they are doing plan C because they don't know about plan B. Um, listening to a kid is not, quite frankly, listening to a kid is actually not a major component of Plan C. It's a massive component of Plan B, but not a major component of Plan C. 
Plan C, you're just dropping the expectation because you're prioritizing. That listening and prioritizing are not don't overlap in enormous amount. So I wonder if um, either on religious grounds or on teaching and training grounds, there's room for persuading people. And your persuasion strategy wouldn't really be any different than mine. I talk with parents in North America all the time about that if their way of teaching and training their kid, their way of disciplining their kid, their way of trying to make things better isn't working, that they would want to do it a different way. There's certainly nothing written anywhere that says there's only one way to raise a kid, only one way to discipline a kid, only one way. Even if it's written somewhere, it's not true. So I hope that helps. Um, I hear that all the time. And by the way, I don't just hear it about religion. I hear it about culture. I'll hear, well, in this particular culture, not necessarily driven by religion, by the way, uh, Plan B is really not culturally um, consistent with this or that culture. But that's, um, you know, that's actually being biased in the wrong direction. Sometimes we try so hard to be culturally sensitive that we talk about cultures as in homogeneous terms. I don't know any culture that wanted, would want to be referred to as if every member of that culture thought the same way, behaved the same way. And quite frankly, I do find that in every culture there are people who are highly receptive to Plan B, people who are more adherent to Plan A. Um, the people who have to really question their use of Plan A, the ones who question their use of Plan A first are the ones who are living with or working with behaviorally challenging kids because they got no choice. They're, the evidence is before their very eyes. That questioning Plan A in a regular old kid, as I've always said, is a little bit more philosophical, and that is that I don't think you want to be teaching even a regular old kid, whatever that means, that might makes right. That's Plan A with a regular old kid, but you got a behaviorally challenging kid. I don't really care what your culture is. Uh, if what you're doing isn't working, you've got to try something else. Even if the majority of people in your culture are doing it a certain way, uh, apparently you're on a different playing field. Number one goal is to be responsive to the hand you've been dealt, not to do things the way everybody else is doing it. I mean, society's going to look at you out of their corner of their eye anyhow, because if you're not, if you're, if you got a kid who you're trying it the old way, the, the traditional way, and it's not working, you're getting embarrassed at the grocery store. And if you're using collaborative problem solving in the grocery store and people see you doing it, they're going to look out of the corner of your eye, their eyes at you too, because you're not doing it their way. Um, either way, you've got people looking at you out of the corner of their eye. If you've got people looking at you out of the corner of their eye, either way, be responsive to your kid because you may never see the person at the grocery store again. 
um, and they've never walked in your shoes. So whatever they're thinking, uh, they're not living your life and they don't have your kid. Uh, Do what works. Try another one. Dr. Green, I try using Plan B with my daughter, age 10. Tell her that when she explodes, for example, during games or when she's losing or feels she's being treated unjustly, her friends become scared and start to withdraw from her. She replies that I don't, that, here's the quote, I don't need any friends, I want to be alone. She also declines invitations to play at school when her teachers try to get her into a group play. How do I take it from there? She doesn't acknowledge that there is a problem to be solved, so I'm not getting any further. Got it. Thanks for your email. Good question. Um, Here's the deal. I think we've got um, some different unsolved problems mixed together here. Um, One unsolved problem is that she's saying she doesn't need any friends. I want to be alone. And that she's declining invitations to play at school when her teachers try to get into a group play. So... Um, one unsolved problem that we'd want to learn more about is um, apparently, uh, I don't have quite enough information to be certain about this, but that your daughter doesn't seem terribly interested in playing with other kids, at least on certain activities. Now, the you know, um, telling her that she's going to lose friends or be alone when she's losing or feels that she's being treated unjustly, you may get a flip response to that, like, I don't need any friends, I want to be alone. And that would be my first take on it, quite frankly. What changes my view a little bit, but not completely, it still could be that in those instances, is the fact that she's declining invitations to play at school when her teachers try to get her into a group play. I wonder, is she declining invitations to play outside of group play is she playing or is she like a hundred percent isolated so really if we were to be very specific about the first unsolved problem is that she doesn't seem terribly interested in group play i'd need more information to know if that's all play but at the moment i've got group play and that's probably what i'd run with now i've got some other unsolved problems in there and what's crystal clear to me is that on those other unsolved problems Unless your daughter's being flip in her response that she doesn't need any friends and wants to be alone, apparently letting her know that isn't solving those problems. So um, one unsolved problem is that she has difficulty when she's losing at a game. Another unsolved problem is when she feels like she's being treated unjustly. Now, I'd want to be more specific about both of those Under what conditions exactly does she feel like she's being treated unjustly? When's that happen? Um, Which games? On the during games. So I'd I'd want to be more specific about those unsolved problems. And quite frankly, those are just separate unsolved problems. It just seems clear that you telling her that her friends are scared and want to withdraw from her isn't solving those problems. I don't think those are going to be the solutions. I don't think we understand what's going on with her when she's losing a game. We would gather that information in the empathy step of Plan B. I don't think that she 
I don't think that we understand when she's being treated unjustly, what she's thinking during those times, what unjustly means to her, what her concern or perspective is. It's just clear that telling her she's going to lose her friends isn't going to solve whatever's going on when she feels she's being treated unjustly. So I don't want to... I don't want to mix things up. We have at least three separate unsolved problems here. Uh, her teacher's trying to get her to participate in group play, and I'd want to be specific about what type of group play for that unsolved problem. Unsolved problem number two, uh, losing during games. Uh, I'd want to be specific about what those games are. Being treated unjustly, unsolved problem number three. I'd want to be as specific about as possible about when that's happening, under what conditions, over what. Three different unsolved problems. Let's not mix them up. They may feel like they have something to do with each other, but they may not. It, the, the way I'd put this is we can't solve unsolved problem number one and two with unsolved problem number three. They're separate. So if you know the three steps of plan B, uh, it says that you tried using it with her, um, but um, what you're not including in your email, you've got that you tell her that when she explodes, her friends become scared and want to withdraw from her. That would be your concern. I hope, and I don't want to make too much of your email because I'm going with the information that I have. I hope you're doing the empathy step first. It's in the empathy step where we're gathering information from the child about their concern or perspective on a particular unsolved problem. I hope you're not skipping the empathy step. I hope that you telling her that her friends are going to withdraw from her isn't just your concern or you're holding it up as your solution or her motivation for why she should change course because I don't think it's going to work. I think we need to do a bona fide empathy step in which we're gathering information from your daughter on each of those three separate unsolved problems. Uh, you'll want to get your concerns onto the table and you'll have to think about whether you have more concerns than just the fact that her friends are going to withdraw, although that sounds sort of spot on. And then you truly want to be brainstorming solutions in the invitation. Um, not just hoping that the threat of her friends withdrawing from her will somehow solve problems that her friends withdrawing from her aren't going to solve and, quite frankly, would only make worse. I hope that helps. Thank you for your email. Now, we usually get callers on this program. I wonder if the reason we don't is because I didn't tweet before the program that the program was on. I usually remember to do that. I didn't remember to do that. Sorry. Well, luckily, there's the archives, and we're getting through all of these emails. That's cool. Here's another email. Dr. Green, I purchased your book, The Explosive Child, years ago and refer to it still. I have a 12-year-old who's been treated by a psychiatrist since he was seven. His diagnosis is ADHD with mood disorder. 
He goes to therapy to a psychologist as well. Ever since my son was a toddler, he has experienced intense rages. It can be from a simple no or not getting to do what he wants. He has been expelled from his school in the fifth grade. He has been in, on all kinds of meds, medications from stimulant medication to antipsychotics. Nothing helps. He is not attacking me physically. I don't quite understand this sentence. Maybe it's now, now attacking me physically where I have called the police for intervention. Nothing helps. I don't think my son wants to be this way, but he can't help himself. He has alienated all his friends. What can I do? Should I send him to a residential school? I can no longer live under these conditions. I am afraid of my own son. Well, thank you for writing, and I'm very sorry for the situation that you're in. Now let's see if I can help. Um, remember what I said at the beginning of the program about people feeling alone and desperate? scared and at a loss let's see if I can help I don't uh, your son's been in the care he's been on meds since he for the last five years I don't know if his diagnoses are going to help you understand him as well as possible because Diagnoses are actually more likely to tell you what a kid looks like when he's looking bad than they are likely to tell you what skills a child is lacking and what unsolved problems are setting in motion challenging episodes. And you're calling them intense rages. I'm happy to call them that for the next 10 minutes or so. Um, but I don't think the diagnoses are going to tell the tale for you, I think. You need more specific information than that. And, of course, where I always turn when I need more specific information than that is the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, which is downloadable from the Lads in the Balance website. We've got to understand him because things are bad. You're calling the police. I don't know if the police are going to know about lagging skills and unsolved problems. I don't know if your psychiatrist does. I don't know if you're psychologist does. I don't have the perfect sense of what kind of treatment you've been receiving. Um, you said he goes to therapy to a psychologist. That suggests some form of individual or uh, individual therapy. Uh, when I'm helping parents of challenging kids, it is almost exclusively family therapy. Um, yes, there are things we could do in work with a child individually that would help but not with the parents um, not understanding and not if the parents are doing things that aren't working. I get that he's been expelled. I mean, this, is, this is a double whammy. You've got it tough at home and tough at school. It troubles me that he's been on all kinds of meds. <sighs> um, I'm not anti-medication, but... It just feels like something is missing from this picture. You're saying nothing helps, but it doesn't sound like, and I could be wrong here, and of course you're always welcome to call into the program to clarify things, but it doesn't sound like anybody's helped you understand your 
son through the prism of lagging skills, or identify the specific unsolved problems that are setting his intense rages in motion. Because he's not, as I say, intensely raging all the time. He's intensely raging part of the time. I can certainly understand that he's alien at all his friends. As it relates to your question, what can I do? If you haven't done this already, and I don't know if you should send him to a residential school, very hard question for me to answer, although your desperation is coming through loud and clear from your email, and in some extreme cases a residential school is what's needed when all else has been tried and it just doesn't look like anything's going to work. My problem in reading your email is that I'm not sure all else has been tried as it relates to what we talk about on this program and what Lives in the Balance is all about and what all my stuff is about. If you haven't tried identifying your son's lagging skills and unsolved problems, I'd start there. I'd go on by trying to use Plan B on those unsolved problems. I'd do what I always do. I'd pick two or three high-priority unsolved problems, and I'd start trying to solve problems. I'd review all the resources on the Lives in the Balance website. Let's see if you can start understanding what your son's concerns are on those unsolved problems. Let's see if he's able to listen to what your concerns are. Once again, none of this in the heat of the moment, all of this proactively. In other words, your son's intense rages, I'm willing to bet the house, are highly predictable. If they're highly predictable, that opens the door to proactive intervention. Proactive plan B. Let's see if we can start solving those problems that are causing intense rages. Let's see if you can reduce the intense rages so that you feel like you can live under these conditions and that you're not afraid of your own son. And I'm hearing you loud and clear. It sounds like he is scary. If you're calling the police... This is scary. You're in the you're in the this is this is serious now territories. I'm just really worried about what you haven't done yet. I got the meds, I got the therapy with the psychologist. It's what hasn't been done that's leaving me troubled. You are welcome to call into this program anytime you want. And I wish you luck. I was standing in line. I was uh, speaking in Sweden and Norway last week. Uh, this is not me complaining, but I spent uh, more time on planes and trains than I did speaking last week because I was in a uh, part of Sweden that isn't uh, super accessible to its major airports. And so that took a train ride, and I was then no easy way to get from there to where I was speaking next, Oslo, Norway. And, of course, the flight over 
total is you know in the eight to nine hour range, and the flight back total is in the nine to ten hour range. Um, the way the winds blow, and I spoke. Uh, I don't know, six hours on Thursday and six hours on Friday, so do the math. Intense, but you know what I, I learned? We have uh, listeners. This is now an international web-based radio program. We have listeners in Sweden, so good afternoon, Sweden, if that's when you're listening to this program. It's morning here in the United States when we're recording this. Good afternoon, Norway. Good afternoon, Denmark. People in all of those countries listening to this program these days. How cool is that? But back to my story, I was in line at uh, Logan Airport uh, in Boston getting ready to fly to uh, Sweden and um, came across a uh, passenger standing next to me who was uh, speaking what sounded like a Scandinavian language to me. So I said, uh, what language are you speaking? I'm not, I'm not so familiar with the languages that I'm able to distinguish them from each other especially Danish from Swedish from Norwegian. Sorry about that. What language is that? He said, uh, Swedish. I said, uh, I'm going there. He said, fantastic. Where are you going? I said, uh, Aurebro. He said, uh, that's not how you say it. I said, how do you say it? I want to I know how to say it before I get there so I don't embarrass myself. And he taught me how to say what looks like Aurebro in English but is really Aurebro in Swedish. And to our Swedish listeners, I hope I didn't botch that up too badly. So he taught me how to say Orebru, and um, I guess, well, then he said, what are you going to be doing over there? I said, I'm going to be speaking about how to understand and help behaviorally challenging kids. His eyes widened, and he said, um, really? I have an adolescent daughter who won't talk to me. She won't do anything I say. What should I do? Well, we're in security. We're about to have to sort of go through security, so I didn't have time to do what I usually do, gather information, you know, do the do what you do to really understand. So I gave some um, sort of soundbite advice because uh, he was in a rush, I was in a rush. I said, um... Stop telling your kid what to do and start listening. You know, without advanced preparation, as we learned from one of our emailers today, um, you might have to point out to people who already think a certain way based on religion or culture or values or morals that listening to a kid actually has value and value justified by some of their other values and some of what else is contained in their religious beliefs and even things that may be contained in their culture. You just may have to find those things to set the stage for them to feel like this is actually something they could do. Um, For our last emailer, uh, I don't know um, if telling the kid what to do less and listening more is going to help. Maybe you've tried that already. I don't know. I hate to see things going badly for you, and I hope that 
the answer to your question helps, and as always, you're welcome to call into the program for more help if you need it. That's going to do it for us for today. Um, Hope you found today's program to be informative. Back again next week with the most exciting program of the month, as always, the Parents Panel. So, yes, Susie's back, Sharon's back, Peter's back, um, and we'll be back with another edition of Parenting Challenging Kids next week. Until then, take care.